Good evening and welcome to First Aid Chats by Dr. G. I am Dr. Adana Grandison, a physician in Barbados and your hostess for this evening. First Aid Chats by Dr. G is a live podcast that provides listeners with a unique opportunity to not only hear complicated medical conditions explained, but also clarify any misunderstandings you may have about that condition. After all, a medically aware and educated patient is an empowered patient. This evening, our episode is entitled From A to Z Medical Myths and Misconceptions. And our guest is Dr. Russell Broomwebster. Dr. Broomwebster is a chief resident in the Family Medicine Program at the University of the West Indies Cafield Campus. He is currently involved in day-to-day care of patients at the General Practice Unit at the Edgar Cochrane Polyclinic in Wilde. He's also involved in medical student education and training, clinical research, and multiple public health initiatives. He is an advocate for universal health care with an aim to improve access, availability, and quality of care to the undeserved population. Good evening and welcome, Dr. Broom Webster. Hi, good evening. Can you hear me, Adana? Yes, I can hear you loud and clear. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Great. Excellent. So to lead off our discussion this evening, I thought it fit to, to first read an excerpt that I saw from health.gov as it related to health literacy, because we wanted to touch a bit this evening on health literacy, social medicine, health education, and the importance of everything and how it comes together quite nicely. And it said, everyday people confront situations that involve life-changing decisions about their health. These decisions are made in such places as the grocery, drugstores, workplaces, playgrounds, doctors' offices, clinics, and hospitals, even around the kitchen table. Only some of these decisions are made when patients and their healthcare providers are in a face-to-face consultation. Many more are made when people are on their own and dealing with often unfamiliar and complex information. For example, 
They may figure out what type of health insurance they should choose, how much medicine to give a sick child, understanding the directions on a printed box, or how to respond to a warning about a severe public health outbreak in their area. People need information they can understand and use to make informed decisions and take actions that protect and promote their health. So, Dr. Broom-Webster, without any further ado, I just wanted you to explain to us what really is health literacy? Let's start there. Hi, first of all, um, thanks for having me, Adana. Um, I appreciate um, taking the opportunity to come on your program and have a conversation with everyone that's listening on a topic that I think is um, underserved and something that really we should be, you know, we, sh we should all kind of take into consideration both doctors and patients and, you know, healthcare administrators in everything that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, generally speaking, health literacy is commonly defined as the skills and abilities needed to gain access to, understand, and use health-related information. Now, um, I think a, a really good example of, of this um, kind of thing, obviously, was, you know, the little excerpt that, that you used just now. But, you know, what your program is trying to do, um, you know, is where, where we're using um, different technologies now to try to expand um, what we do in terms of, of getting um, more people on board, whether healthcare professionals or um, patients themselves in participating in the healthcare system, uh, understanding exactly how things can work better for them. And, you know, I really want to congratulate you because I think it's an awesome, um, it's really an awesome program. And this is the kind of thing that, you know, universal healthcare advocates and persons like myself that are so interested in empowering patients, we, we all, you know, we, we're very proud to see. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'll start there. I, I can go on a lot further, but I guess we can, we can move on then. Great. So in terms of the health literacy. So a patient comes to you, first of all, what duty do you have to that patient? And how do you ensure health literacy with that or establish health literacy with that patient? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think regarding um, the concept of, of literacy is certainly, you know, when, when people hear the word uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about how we could, you know, maybe make it a more patient-friendly word, or even for some patients, you know, literacy is something that people can get very nervous about. I, I think this whole concept really started out as um, persons realized on a very basic level that patients literally couldn't understand information that was given to them. On the very basic level, they couldn't read it. Um, but as time went on, you know, that's expanded into, you know, three, I guess what you could say is, is, is three major aspects of, of the term health literacy, and it continues to evolve. Uh, we talk about the ability to read and understand health information, um, a wider ability to engage with the healthcare process itself, and then the removal by healthcare systems of unnecessary, unnecessary complexity and barriers to patient understanding and involvement. Um, so, you know, those, those three areas themselves, um, you, you know, you can break them down a bit further, but when we talk about ability to read and understand, I think the excerpt that you, you described was quite, 
um, quite important because that really spoke about, you know, you know, you have an average patient as we do on a day to day basis who may, who may come to the polyclinic and, you, you know, you, even if you have a busy clinic that day and, and in one step of that process, new medication may have been prescribed that may not have been explained in a, in an appropriate manner or in an ideal setting. And particularly with, as patients become um, older and more dependent, you do, you do get um, misinterpretations or errors happening. So put in, you know, that, that kind of scenario can, can really describe all three layers of what's happening. Does this patient understand that their hypertension medication was changed today? And we wanted them to, to monitor a little more closely. And what are the personal barriers to, to the patient? Are they, are they hearing well? Do they need a family member to be there? Is it that this medication may have side effects that they don't want? Has that been described to them? Um, so, and, and then they, they may move to the, the pharmacist who, who then has a, has a duty as well to, to continue that role. Um, ultimately, it all, it all comes down to, do they even understand why the medication was changed and therefore the importance of taking it? And, you know, and, and these are all, I think those, those kind of scenarios happen day to day, not just in um, primary care clinics, but, you know, patients who may be consenting for surgery and trying to understand all the information that's being put forward to them, how, how they make those decisions, how we help them make those decisions and how we empower them to, to, to be as healthy as possible um, with, 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 within the environment that, that they operate. Okay, so given that this uh, medical literacy is so important, um, this essentially is to affect the outcomes that a patient may have. Um, certainly if a patient does not understand the importance of their medication, and for instance, the medication causes an adverse outcome or not even an adverse, but merely an unwanted outcome, um, the patient may stop it and decide not even to have that conversation with the doctor before stopping it or saying, hey doc, I really don't like how my medication has me feeling. Is there an alternative? What can we do together? And so we know that medicine has really gone away from a more paternalistic approach into a, a a partnership with the patient. How important is that to, to actually accomplishing the goal of a better patient outcome? Yeah, so I mean, I think um, patient outcomes in themselves is, you know, is, is, is something that we have to be very, very careful about, about describing. Um, in, in general, you know, traditionally, we, we see outcomes as related to uh, outcomes as related to whether someone lives or dies, you know, whether a particular target or measurable target gets better, is your HbA1c or is your blood sugar better? Is your blood pressure better? And um, when, when we talk about uh, outcomes, it's, it's really important to understand that, yes, I mean, I think improved literacy certainly can help those kind of very tangible and hard outcomes, but certainly persons being able to understand and engage with the system around them and navigate it easily also helps with, with their, uh, you know, less tangible outcomes. So their quality of life, you know, their experience with the, um, 
with their um, healthcare provider and with the health system so that, you know, it's not stressful when you go to the doctor. You understand basic things like when, what time is my appointment? When should I arrive? How, if I'm coming for something specific today, like a blood test, what are the things that I should do to prepare for that? Um, and, and, and those types of what information may my doctor need to, to help me have, to be, help make this visit a much more enjoyable one, you know, and creating an environment that's not just seeing the ill, but preventing illness and, and, and promoting um, wellness. So I think um, when it comes to, to patient outcomes, there are multiple things, obviously, um, that we can measure. Is is well established that those layers of literacy that, you know, I, I kind of described are, are, are all uh, contributory. But we also must accept that despite someone being extremely knowledgeable, um, extremely informed, understanding how to navigate every single part of the healthcare system, that ultimately um, they still have a choice. Um, and, and we do notice, you know, in, in some cases, patients will still will decide, despite having everything available to them, to not, you know, heed, heed medical advice or to go um, or to do something that is not necessarily what the, the physician or the, or the healthcare personnel would expect. And we have to respect their choices as well in that particular scenario. So, I mean, that's a bit counterintuitive because you would expect, but it's about giving people um, all the information so that they can make a decision that is, is best for them in that particular circumstance. And it's not always that persons are going to agree with everything you have to say or do everything you have to say. Because as you said, we, we try to, in, 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 you know, in, in being patient-oriented and discussing with patients, we try to let patients come up with the decisions that, that, that best suit their social context, their lives at that particular point in time, and um, can ultimately give them the best outcome, which isn't always a tangible measure, but something that is something that is meaningful to them as the patient and their family. Uh, a little harder to measure, but those, you know, that's kind of how it really happens in in practice. Yeah? Okay, great. So you spoke just now about um, the doctor and the patient discussing medicine, but quite often, even as, as the opening statement that I made, decisions are made sometimes on the patient's end long before they get to the doctor's office. Quite often in the Caribbean, we practice a lot of folk medicine, social medicine. The, I have a headache, my headache is on the left side. And you tell that to your colleague, and your colleague or your friend or the neighbor or the granny says, why well, had a headache that was just like this? And I took X and I have a few more in my bag so I can give you a few of those. How safe or dangerous is that practice? Well, um, first of all, I would, I would um, clarify a few things. I mean, I, I guess when you say social medicine, you're implying um, persons in the immediate community um, making, you know, giving advice, that's, that's your... Absolutely, that's, that's, absolutely. Right. So um, in, in terms of, you know, social medicine is, is kind of a, a specific branch of medicine that really um, came about as an as a evolution on the background of, of public health. And as time has gone on, that term has kind of disappeared because public health has moved from encompassing more communicable diseases and, um, you know, from a more macroscopic view of things to, to being very nailed down on things like social determinants, et cetera. Um, but in the context that, that you use it, um, it's, 
it's clear that I, I would say that there are definitely pros and cons um, to that type of, of thing. And, and interestingly, a lot of, a lot of research that, that we're involved in now kind of leans on trying to empower um, patient experts or patients within the community to, to advocate, um, to, to give ad, advice to a certain extent, limited advice, it may be as simple as, as you know, how they cook their meals. Um, we, we recently actually uh, had a study that was um, taken on by the University of West Indies called the Lifestyle Intervention and Metformin Escalation Trail, where we where we looked at you know behavioral counseling as a major intervention to changing, um, as you said, the patient outcome, um, persons control who were who were pre-diabetic. So these were persons that did not yet have diabetes, and interestingly, that trail is is patient is you know patient led. We're, we're we, we facilitate it, they're facilitators, but the patients themselves are the ones that interact and, and empower each other and create groups that, that try, to, try to, you know, enhance this concept of, of social medicine that you described. And our communities are really where our, our strongest impact can be. So, so you know, there is a, a pro in that if you can, in, again, empower communities, give them some of the skill sets, we had a standardized way of, of delivering these workshops, using persons within the community. And uh, I guess the early results do show that it was really effective. And, you know, that's really promising because this kind of real world implementation type research is, 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 is awesome when it, when it can be effective because it's likely to be much more effective than a very scientific, um, well-controlled and rigorous randomized trial that, that may have happened otherwise. Um, so just to say that there are pros and cons, I think that certainly if you if you can intervene in communities, it's the place we need to start going next to really enhance um, the public health profile and really get persons um, where they need to be, being empowered, educated, et cetera. Patients can help each other. Now, on the other hand, um, what we've had traditionally, I think we just leverage on that. We know traditionally how much people respect elders in their communities, persons that may have um, valuable um, information when it comes to to various medical remedies and so on, and and we we leverage that kind of community strength to try to make it um, to try to make you know health delivery even even better. Um, you know, but another example that I can remember is there was a there was a trial recently in the United States where they looked at hypertension management, and really what they did is they empowered barbershops. Um, you know, barbershops, mainly African-American men um, attending these barbershops. And they basically, they empowered bar barbers with some training from a pharmacist to talk about hypertension and hypertension management. And, you know, that trial was, was, was really successful in, in, a, in a, you know, significant um, hypertension reduction. So these kind of alternative, um, you know, social modalities where you can get into the community can be really helpful. But at the same time, if you have no checks and balances in those communities, you do get the situations where, you know, um, someone may, may, be, may be using alternative medicine, and that is not really recommended or may even cause them significant harm. And they may not even know, but, but trust it exclusively to the point where they, they, it creates a barrier to interact with the, with the doctor because 
person say, well, you know, it, if the doctor doesn't like that and they don't know, they don't want to, to come in. So I think there are pros and cons. Um, and I think we're at a point where we realize we need to definitely leverage uh, those types of systems to, to make um, this whole concept of literacy, understanding and engagement uh, much more much more effective than just the traditional come into the office and sit down. And there's a lot happening with your body and your health outside of just the, the doctor's office. Yeah. Good. So we we are we have as our as our title from A to Z some of these medical myths and misconceptions, and quite often uh, it is very easy for as you said uh, sometimes patients may feel uncomfortable or might not even understand the role and the interaction between the doctor and that patient. Um, exactly, how should a patient's visit go with that doctor to ensure that all of those misconceptions are clarified? Yeah, so I mean, um, the first thing I would say to, to answer your, your question is that we all have a, have a major responsibility to, to focus, and this is any person engaging in the healthcare system, um, from patients all the way to doctors, all the way to whoever's in charge of the administration. And we, we all need to do a really, really good job and be experts at communicating. I mean, that may seem very cliche because that's a general thing in the community, but we need to really be experts at communicating clearly, um, communicating in terms that everyone understands and respecting each other's opinions. You know, these are just some basic concepts that, that, that we can do. It goes back to your discussion about paternalism, whether, whether you know, it's not just a top-down approach where the doctor tells the patient what to do, but really um, listening to what they have to say. And I think being excellent listeners is probably... Um, the most important thing that, that physicians can do, especially when patients have these types of concerns. Um, so, you know, specifically, we, we're kind of talking about being patient-centered and, and, and patient-oriented, but all that really means is that, you know, if someone comes to your office, you need to explore, you know, their ideas around what may be wrong with them. You know, um, many times people may have a relative um you know, you can have a patient that presents for you very concerned about, you know, some reflux type symptoms, meaning that, you know, they feel like they have a burning feeling in their, in their chest all the time. But they may have had a relative two years ago who died from, you know, pancreatic cancer. And unless you explore that and ask them about it instead of, um, you know, just brushing them off or not delving into the conversation or listening to their ideas, what they believe about this chest pain that they're having, is it concerning to them? And um, you know, these these types of things will 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 allow you to really get into the nitty gritty, and you will eventually find out that well, you know what, they're they're extremely worried about about what happened because they had a relative that was very ill and actually died. And until you really dig dig, you won't you won't find that 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 type of information. So, being open, I think listening to patients, allowing them to to interact and to tell you exactly what's going on and to, you know, be respectful of their opinions without judgment. Uh, these, that, setting that kind of tone almost always leads to, uh, even with the most difficult patient um, who may have preconceived notions because of unfortunate experiences with the healthcare system previously, you can drop, you can, you can, you know, kind of negate or, or stop all those barriers from being as, significant for them just by listening to what they have to say 
uh, and taking the extra two minutes to do so. Um, so I think that's how the conversations should go in, in general. Even when you do have a very busy day, you can take that extra time to to listen to what people have to say. And it, it goes a long way in building respect um, with your patient population and just building respect about each other. And I, I think that, you know, that's de definitely the starting point. I mean, there's a lot more that goes on, but certainly being able to communicate positively and effectively is, is the underpinning of this whole um, interaction with the patient and doctor. Great. I have a comment here uh, from Zilly. She says, communication is of utmost importance. Some patients don't like to ask questions. They go online and try to do their own self-diagnosing. How dangerous is that? Well, I mean, I think, again, I, I think self-diagnosis is, is, can be very dangerous. Um, it also is a major barrier. And I mean, I, I guess we're getting into that when we now move on from how it, you know, getting into social media and, you know, all that is available on the internet, which is the, which is the next challenge that we have as, as practitioners, you know, in 2020 moving forward is that we're not only battling with, you know, the traditional um, social, this traditional interaction in communities and, and folk tales and so on, but you're also dealing with the plethora of information that is out there on the on the internet and and from all the various sources and certainly without guidance um, and without expert guidance uh, and and evidence based guidance usually informed by, by experts like physicians who are trained is you know you really shouldn't be using you know those those sites um, to because it, it definitely makes it makes it very difficult. Um, so I am, I'm not a fan of, of the self-diagnosing, but certainly, again, I think it's something you can overcome if you, if you maintain a very open relationship with your patients and encourage them to, to talk about those issues. You know, I know many people, when they, when they come to, to my office, it's something that they're hesitant to, to talk about. They, they come to the, you know, they, they come to the office and, and they have, lots of concerns. They've been doing all this text, they've been doing all this research online, treating themselves, whatever the case is. And you may only actually find that out if you, you know, when you actually, you know, by the second or third visit, when you find out there's some herbal supplement they've been taking that they found online and, and, and stuff like that. So it's something that you definitely have to have to be mindful of and you need to, you need to, you know, counsel patients against it. It is a difficult thing to stop again because of the, I think because of, of how easily accessible information is. So this all comes back down to our messaging and education from the beginning. You know, it's kind of a pre, as part of our preventative package, educating people about you know not self-diagnosing and you know relying on expert information. Those are, those are kind of some of the ways that, that you can go around it. But it's not it's not easy because. Um, we know that information is there and it's always coming at you in WhatsApp. It's coming at you on social media. Um, it's coming at you from, from, from you know, people in the neighborhood. So it's one of those very difficult and vexing problems that I think um, healthcare um, administrators and professionals have, have going forward to deal with on top of everything else that we, that we have to deal with. Okay? Great. I hope that helps. Yeah, yeah certainly. Um, Rhoda? 
if you you're willing to call, yeah. you can feel free to call at this point. We'll take your question. Good evening, Rhoda, and you are on your life. Go ahead. Hello, people. Nice talking hey. to you. I have a, I kind of, I have a specific question. I don't know if it's under your specialties, but uh, my sister has uh, rheumatism in her fingers. The tip of her fingers are getting black and cold. It's like blood doesn't flow over there. It's getting even more black day by day. She doesn't smoke. She doesn't drink. I believe it's just because of cold. When she gets cold, this kind of problems happen. What do you think she should do? Okay, uh, Rhoda, um, thank you for the question. I don't know if Dr. Broom Webster wants to take the question, but I certainly will start. Um, but I would say this to you, given that unfortunately this is this is not um, this the, the topic for this evening essentially was to talk more so about uh, patient empowerment, patient literacy. Um, I will certainly tell you that um, it is a conversation, first of all, that you need to have with your doctor. Mm -hmm. um, she, you were saying that she does have rheumatism. Is that correct? Yes, yes, rheumatism. They call it vasculi traumatism. The right. Blood so, just doesn't doesn't flow at the tip of her fingers. And right. So I would suggest I would suggest that she probably would have um, a, a surgical consult. There there are conditions like Berger's disease um, that she can certainly um, speak to her physician to completely um, explore what is happening so that they can best answer the question that she may have or to, to completely get her a, a complete diagnosis that would that would help her the most as opposed to, for instance, having a consult over over the phone. Uh, Dr. Brumaisa, yeah. would you like to take it away? Thank you. Uh, no problem. Um... Hi Rhoda, how are you? Thanks for the question. Hi, hi. Um, Thank you. Obviously, uh, first of all, is you know sorry to hear about your sister's um, rheumatism and, I and the fact that she's 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 now having some some issues uh, related to what seems to be blood supply. I, I think that's that's more than likely a, um, related to to her underlying rheumatism, um, as Dr. Grandison said. There there may be surgical pathology involved, but I think that it's a good idea if you let her see her doctor and follow up as soon as as soon as possible so that they can help her with that problem. Especially if it's only happening when she's it happens mostly when she's very cold. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So when the usually weather that, that's is cold. When the weather is cold, yeah. So I mean I, I don't think there's a forum really to be making um diagnoses without seeing her. Um there is a condition called mm -hmm. Raynaud's phenomenon, which can yeah, happen. Absolutely Raynaud, Raynaud. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah Raynaud. Yeah. So so they and usually there's some very specific ways of um diagnosing it and also treating it. Um so you just really need to speak with your doctor. I'm sure they're very, very clear on on what it on how to how to manage it. I mean, keeping her hands warm when it's cold is, is probably the easiest thing you can do, but some people are very severe and it may be associated with, with some other things as well. So just let her get a, a follow-up so she can, you know, she can really get the best outcome um, for herself. But it, it's a good question and it's an interesting 
um, problem. So I, I hope that I hope that she can get some relief. Yeah, doctor. Thank you, doctor. Do you know what's the problem? She started to get this kind of, you know, a medical. Hi, Laura. Hi, hi, hi. Hello. It seems like we lost Rhoda. Yeah, no problem. Uh, 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 I, I see another question here from Ellie yeah, What about the patient who suffers from severe anxiety when they are at the doctor? Yeah, so um, Ellie, L-E-W. I mean, you know, that's actually a very common um, situation. And again, you need to create an environment that allows those type, you know, those patients to to have access still. So, I mean, my, my suggestion is 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 expanding. You know, we need to think what more widely about kind of you know what what we do, um, and and be open to to kind of engaging with patients in other ways that may make them feel more comfortable and safer. Uh, obviously. You know things that can reduce anxiety in and out of office. Certainly, if you know those, you know a patient like that, you want to stick to general principles, which are principles you would use for all your patients. So if there's an appointment, you really want to stick to the, you know the time you want to you know engage with that patient at, you know as soon as possible so that they can feel comfortable, be courteous, um, those kind of wait times. And there's one of the reasons, for example, in in some doctors' offices where persons can get very peeved if they're waiting for long periods of time, that will only add to the anxiety. And then recognizing that there is anxiety. I mean, my advice would be if, if you are very anxious about going to the doctor, um, it's something that you should communicate up front, even when you're making your appointment. Um, and those are things that we can prepare for to try to make the environment as, as comfortable uh, for you. We can even have a, uh, you know, you can even consider within reason a, a telephone conversation um, to, to introduce some of the some of the issues. Obviously, over the telephone, we are very limited um, in in what we can do, especially when it's a new consultation or a new visit. But we have to think about those, you know, other modalities that we can use to try to help patients uh, uh, relieve some of their anxiety. Because usually there usually there is a very specific reason why patients are anxious, and sometimes exploring that can really help them um, overcome those those issues. So. Again, it's about access, it's about availability, it's about understanding how to navigate despite your challenges, your personal challenges with anxiety and how you can ultimately still get the care that you deserve, but you may need to do it in a way that makes you as, you know, as comfortable as possible and, and in a stepwise, stepwise manner. Great. Uh, I have another question here from Shirley. Would you recommend that patients go to their doctor's visit with a list of all of his or her complaints or only the symptoms related to that doctor's specialty? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think this is an excellent question, Shirley. Um, one, of the, one of the points that's, that's brought out here is the importance of having a, a, a primary care physician or a general practitioner, somebody who kind of coordinates your healthcare for you. You know, they're like the gatekeeper, they're the navigator, they're the person that's, that's kind of, you know, pointing you in various directions and keeping a cohesive understanding of everything that, that you're doing on a, you know, with, with, especially if as many patients do have, have multiple issues that may require various specialists to get involved. And, and I, I totally would agree that, you know, your primary care and, pra 
um, practitioner or a primary care physician, family medicine doctor, they need they need to know everything that's going on. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with taking a with taking a list. Um, you know, in in addressing that list, um, your physician may may think that there's some things that may have more priority than others, but certainly they wouldn't they won't ignore them. But every day you may not be able to get to every single problem, but you know, care is a continuum and the plan is to make sure to solve all of your problems within a reasonable time and within a safe amount of time um, so that we can get you as comfortable as possible with the best outcomes and the best quality of life. So it's, it's not a, a one, you know, it's not a magic bullet, a one-stop shop, but certainly the more problems that you explore, the more issues that you can get solutions to, the better it is for you and, and your healthcare as, as the patient. And as a doctor, in terms of their satisfaction in, in solving solving problems, so it's a two way street. Yeah. Great. I see a comment and then a question from Zilly. She said, "Patients also need to know their family medical history, especially those that affect mother and father. Although both may be deceased, if you know of their illness, you should let your doctor know." And then she goes on to ask the question: Should men, in particular, get red, regular checkups or tests done the older they get and how often? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, those are, uh, I think, two, two good points. Obviously, uh, family history is extremely important. We, we should have a, a very clear idea of, of, of your family history from your initial consultation at any given time, as that's, that's a detailed and very important part of, of, of medical history for a wide range of reasons, uh, from, you know, hereditary conditions all the way to things like associations with cancer, um, genetic predisposition to, to chronic diseases. So it's, it's certainly very important. Um, now, the question regarding men um, is, a, is an important one, too. And, and in, in general, my first point would be that, that men need to need to develop um, healthy relationships with the doctor in general. And this from this from all age groups. Um, it's obviously an area we do know we do know that, that men engage the healthcare system uh, a lot less than women. Usually when they do come to, to the doctor, they're a lot more um, they may have a much more serious problem, um, generally speaking. And that, you know, the, the barriers to healthcare for men are multifaceted from, you know, social norms all the way to being afraid, um, but generally speaking, for all adults, you know, you you should try to at least have a wellness visit on a, on a yearly basis. Where depending on your profile, you know, your age, what other conditions you may have, um, we will consider we will do what we call age appropriate screening, um, which looks for any you know conditions that are you know important to look for in your age group and, and population, and also try to address any acute um, or sub, you know, any any pressing issues at that point in time, and you know that will guide how regularly you are seen or not seen. But certainly yearly, I think most people should try to, um, to tr if you're otherwise well, to try to have a wellness visit or a, a checkup, and that's for everybody. Yeah, as you get older, we do expect that you are going to engage with the doctor more. Person develop more conditions. Um, you know, age sometimes brings other things with it, but we. The whole point of the exercise of, of providing good healthcare is so that that doesn't happen. So, um, uh, yeah, it's it's a good question. 
I want to take you back to a comment that you made a little earlier where you said, you know, it's important to listen to the patient, to hear their concerns and to address those concerns. But how, however, sometimes we quite often find that the, there's a limitation of time within that consultation. Um, how important would, would uh, printed material um, potentially now in a, a, an era where there's a, a plethora of technology um, directing them, let's say, to, to a health website where they can get some of that additional information to sort of uh, cement their understanding um, of that particular medical condition to, to further the conversation the next time. How important is that for, do you think that there's a role certainly um, after the doctor's visit in terms of continuing to educate the patient? Yeah, for sure. Um, obviously, you need to take into into consideration how you deliver that information. It, it may not be the same for, for every patient, but with the, in the whole... Uh, in the whole, in the whole mode or the direction of, of health literacy, all you know, basic patient information should should be able to to be well understood by anyone, and and that's kind of a a, a general rule that we we've all moved towards, um, and it's it's quite commonplace to support um, clinical practice uh, or a visit, as as you said, with with a, a follow-up, you know, an email with a link to, you know, a, a particular medical website, which may have, I mean, we use up to date a lot in my office that, that provides um, that medical information. There's, as you know, there's, there's sites like um, e Medscape or eMedicine, which is also very good to, to give some patient uh, oriented information, which, which is very helpful. And I think, um, I think that those types of things, whether it's medical information, depending on what condition the, the patient may have, you may direct them towards a support group, as we had mentioned earlier with some of the research that has been done locally um, that is very effective within the community. You know, within the polyclinics, we, we have, you know, the men's health group or the diabetes group or, you know, women's health. And, and these groups are really well attended by persons um, within the polyclinic system. And certainly, the you know it adds to the level of education and understanding where you can take time outside of the normal clinical session to explain or answer even more questions. I think the issue of time that you mentioned is a vexing one for physicians and patients alike. And using these alternative methods to get information out there or to <clears throat> make sure patients understand, even even you know spending time to possibly do a follow up call. Um, whether you are the physician doing it, or you may have a, a, a you know, a, 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 you may have a, a person who is is medically trained who, who can be on duty to do those types of calls to follow up, and those you know th those types of things actually are, are proven to, to help a lot as well if you have the time and effort, and it reduces the in office kind of time and helps you know prioritize visits, etc. So. I think that yes, we need to, you know, those those types of things. Adding information, we is really important, but it has to be clear, it has to be concise, and it has to be effective. We need to continue to focus on: is this something that the patient can use to help them, or is it going to make it more complicated? Because as as they say, you know, a, a wealth of of information is a poverty of attention, and you don't want, you know. 
you, you have to constantly, I, I like to use that as a mantra in the background so that I don't overwhelm patients. Because generally speaking, most people will only take somewhere between, you know, 10 to 20%. Some people say 5 to 20% of what you say, particularly the longer the consultation goes, the less they, they can gather. And that's understandable. Um, so supporting the information in as many ways as possible, but also keeping in mind that it has to be clear, concise, and, you know, really something that they can hold on to. Yeah. Great. Thanks for I the want, question. I, I want to take you now to a completely different sphere. Quite mm. often the patient comes to us. Is there any role, for instance, for uh, patients or the public for instance, getting any sort of medical information within the workplace. Quite often, historically, uh, the workplace was never seen as a place for wellness and addressing wellness issues. However, more and more now, we are seeing companies adopting wellness policies and having wellness days. How important or do you, what is the benefit of having such? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, we continue to realize that widening the net is the only way that we can really continue to, to be impactful and to use existing resources and existing frameworks to implement a lot of these healthcare and public health strategies that, that we want to. Doing everything inside a clinic is probably not going to do that, um, especially with the busy lives that persons live, you know, going, doing, as I, as I like to call it, these non-traditional healthcare settings, even though the clinic will always have a primary role, we have to think about how we access them. And, you know, again, like the barbershop study that I mentioned um, earlier, similar things with, with, the, with the workplace and going into workplaces and educating um, hearing from persons that may not normally engage with the healthcare system, you can create buy-in or you can, I don't like to use the word market, but you can certainly develop interest in, in wellness um, at, at the workplace level. And then tie-in, what I think is, is, is nice now and, and coming to the fore more often is, is the concept of, of human capital, where you, know, you, you tie in the importance of the healthy workforce into the health of a nation economically, um, in particular, and and those, you know, when you when persons really understand that being healthy allows you to actually live a much more purposeful and um, you know sustainable life, I think that that is a selling point that that may be understated quite a bit, and and the workplace is somewhere that you can definitely get that message home. So it is it's an area that that we need to do more more in. I, I do notice a lot of workplaces recently, as you as you mentioned, last few years. They definitely do try to, um, the bigger companies work on, you know, those type of workplace days and so on. But it's, it's something that is, is, is really uh, interesting um, when you get in. You know, even if you go, I, I'm sure you've done it, um, Dr. Granison, where you go to a medical, you know, do, doing uh, medicals, which may be for insurance purposes. But you really see an interesting range of patients and, and realize there are a lot of persons who are very interested but may not have, have engaged in, in, in healthcare in a substantive way previously. So um, workplace wellness is definitely something that, that we need to continue along with other non-traditional um, settings to, to uh, advocate for better health. 
Definitely. I, I wanted to ask you before we run out of time this evening and before we probably get any more questions in, but I do encourage you guys to ask questions. Uh, Dr. Broomabster, please tell us a bit about universal healthcare. We keep hearing this term tossed around over and over again. What is it? Yeah, so um, basically, universal healthcare is a, a system that provides quality medical services for for all citizens. Um, and when they when they say when they say quality, it is essentially in most cases there's a system or a financial system in place that allows this at least a basic level of healthcare to be accessible to every single person in that particular population. Um, again, primary care is, is the backbone of, of that type of healthcare system because we, we are the, the gatekeepers um, for, the, for the most part. But you, it is difficult sometimes to, um, locally in Barbados, and explaining universal healthcare seems almost counterintuitive because that is the system that we generally have. Yes, it could be better. There are things that, that could be better, but we do have public health, which is available to all. There are challenges with, with both public and private, but I, I think in, it's, it's more easily understood to the, to the person living in an in a insurance-driven um, community, particularly like places like the United States and other parts of the world where healthcare can really you really may not be able to access healthcare universally um, unless as a basic human right. And that's one of the tenets of universal healthcare as well. Health is a human right. And as a society, we have the, we have the obligation to provide health for every single citizen, at least at some basic level, um, to give them you know, that health equity or that equal footing moving forward. So um, there's a lot more to discuss about it, um, but certainly, that's that's the starting point. That everyone can access healthcare, um, at least some reasonable level of healthcare. Okay, so I just wanted to continue on along that trend. Um, mm. Quite often, locally, persons or the public they're turned back or turned rather, they're turned off of accessing public healthcare. They often say, "Oh, I have to wait too long," or or that healthcare um, system. You know, I, I really can't handle interacting with that 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 system. However, there there's a benefit to actually entering sometimes that public health system, especially when you want to ensure that you get the most complete care, especially in very expensive situations, if there are the limitations of health insurance policies that can't absorb any more of the cost or accessing the cost privately is just way too expensive. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think this is a, a common scenario that may present itself. One of the issues that we, we do have, again, all comes back to persons understanding um, the system that they're living in understanding how best to negotiate it for, for the best outcome. And yes, individuals have a responsibility, but also, um, for, you know, particularly physicians working in the healthcare system, as well as, you know, other professionals do have a responsibility to help, help patients navigate these kind of vexing problems. 
Um, many persons, you know, pay out of pocket in Barbados, meaning, you know, meaning when I say out of pocket, they, they use cash, so they may not even have insurance coverage. Um, they are the pros of going privately where, you know, they may be less. Generally speaking, one of the big ones is with staff. Hello? May not be, hello? Yes, please. Can hear you now. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, waiting times in particular is, is something that that is a very, um, a very concerning thing for, for patients. Uh, polyclinics that are, are overrun or dealing with, with very emergent issues, it's quite clear that, that, that sometimes there may not be the time and attention necessary to to attend to every single issue on that particular day. And this can lead to unfortunate interactions between patients and healthcare systems. So, you know, there, there, are, there are, you know, obviously pros and cons to, to every system. But importantly, you know, you need to, I think, is, is a duty of everybody involved to think about the patient. And certainly, whether you're seeing Absolutely. a patient pri privately or publicly, that has to be your focus. And there's nothing wrong with, with having a, a mixture of both. You know, you may, you may go to see a, a physician privately who may recommend what your course of treatment, as all of, as all of us should do. But weighing the options, as, every, as we all should, weighing the options, you understand that for you, it may be best to take uh, the route of the public healthcare system, which may be a little longer, but it may leave you less financially exposed or may, may leave you in a less vulnerable position and you still can get the comprehensive um, treatment that, that you deserve. So Absolutely. we all have a role to focus on, on the patient and to keep that as the center of our, of our focus. And, and I think if we do that, whether private or public, we, Barbados actually has a, a lot of resources to find the solutions for most of these problems. Some are a little more tedious than others, um, but tedious may be balanced with, with cost and, and you just find um, whatever is the right mix for the particular person and the situation that you're dealing with. That's case specific and sensitive to, to what is necessary to get that patient better. Great, true. What are your views? I'm seeing a question here from Yvette. What are your views on herbal medication and alternative medication? Yeah, um, so herbal medication and alternative medication is always a question that I get. I get it from patients all the time. Um, and, and for me, I, I will tell you what my view is, as controversial as it, as it may be. You know, I, I, see, I see medication in the context as some kind of, you know, something that you take, whether orally or, or but something that you take into the body that has an effect to change some disease process and hopefully make it better. Um, a, a, a poison would be something, I guess, that can harm you. And, and the, the issue with medications in general, and this is drugs from pharmaceutical companies all the way to the herbal remedies, is that in general, they should be proven to, to help you and proven to, to give you benefit. So um, even though we do talk about alternative medicine and uh, herbal medicine, there is quite a lot of evidence, which some people are not um, as open to, to reviewing about many of these quote-unquote herbal medications or, 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 or alternative medicines. And in some cases, you would be interested to find that there are some of the, you know, quite a lot of these things that actually work. 
I think we need to give credit to the herbs and the and the um, alternative medication because a lot of our landmark medications originated from from some of these same herbs and, and medicines, which have then been purified and, and made into to much safer and controlled substances over time. So it's a matter of evaluating the evidence, having a discussion around what is best, what's not best, and you know, in obviously there, there are many cases where I've had herbal treatments which have put people into um, significant liver failure, cause problems with with their um, medications, cause them to have all kinds of issues like lightheadedness. Some people have had you know heart attacks, a wide range of things. But there are other things that actually you know may cause some harm and certainly may cause no harm and certainly cause benefit. So you need to be open to having those discussions as well. Yes, absolutely. So certainly take home point is if you are going to to take a herbal or alternative medication, you still need to have that conversation with your doctor to make sure that you're doing it in the safest way possible. We have another question here from Zilly. Thank you so much, Zilly, for another question. Do you think it should be mandatory for all workplaces, including schools, to be taught at least basic first aid or healthcare. I mean, I think those are yeah, those are two different two different things. I, I have my views on the education system, but I'll, I'll touch on them quickly. So, um, basic first aid, yes. So, generally speaking, um, any you know this this should be almost in some countries it is part of you know it's just part of their citizen approach where everyone has to be trained in at least basic first aid. Um, mandatory is, is something that, that, that people always, you know, can always be politically, um, difficult to, to enforce, but I, I think it's important enough that it certainly can add that awareness and certainly save a lot of lives. We, we commonly see anecdotally in Barbados, many persons collapsing, um, many persons being unwell at incidents and people just videotaping and not intervening. Um, I'm not saying you intervene in every situation. The first rule of first of basic first aid is to make sure your environment is safe first. But certainly, you know those kind of scenarios. We if we if we have wider training and awareness, we certainly would be able to even get the right kind of help in the right kind of time. Uh, so I do think basic first aid is really important. And to the point about um, healthcare education, uh, I think some sensitization to to basic concepts around being healthy have to be a, a, a critical part of our education system from a very early age. And, you know, this will help in all the things we're talking about today when we say literacy, which how people engage, interact, um, and understand the healthcare system that they're working in. So I would agree with, I, I think both of those are good points, yeah. Great. Um, I just wanted to finish up this evening a bit with something that we quite often see here as a problem, um, which would be the abuse or rather misuse of, of antibiotics, which is a problem, I guess, not just here, but actually worldwide. Um, yeah. Can you touch very, very briefly on the importance of the correct <laughs> usage of antibiotics. I, I, we, I know we've had conversations about this here, but certainly just give us a, a quick touch in the last three minutes that we have with you. Yeah, so I, I think it's a very important point. Ultimately, we, um, and it's interesting how everything is kind of flowing with each other. We just spoke about herbal medicines and the origin 
of some of these landmark medications or medications that have basically changed public health forever. And penicillin was one of those. Um, and, you know, penicillin itself has had a lot of challenges in, in recent times in terms of treating infectious uh, diseases. And what we call antibiotic stewardship or the ability to, to properly use antibiotics to treat the appropriate conditions is really, really important um, from building resistance. Essentially, for everyone's most basic understanding, if you use antibiotics too much, your body will build up resistance. And when you really need the antibiotics, they won't work. And for basic things that we consider now, they weren't considered so 100 years ago, or maybe 120 years ago, um, for basic things like uh, you know infections, wound infections, and so on, they won't get better. And and ultimately, this is a this is probably one of the biggest. I think I can't remember what it's labeled, but it's certainly in the top five public health concerns worldwide. And to and to break that down, one of the most common scenarios is coming to the doctor for the flu or the cold, you know, or the common cold, and asking and, and patients almost demanding, as as I'm sure um, Dr. Grandison has had in her office as well, people demanding antibiotics and being really, really upset if you don't um, provide those antibiotics. But we need to, to just, again, go back to the basics and explain the pros and cons. You know, generally speaking, most colds are, are will be viral, will be something that your body can get over. Obviously, is not if it's, is, you know, if it's COVID-19, that may even be the case as well. Most people will get over that. And we just need to reassure, you know, antibiotics won't change change the price of rice very much, but it certainly will help you build up resistance um, if used inappropriately. And when you really need the drugs or when other people need the drugs in general, they won't be able to be effective. And you could end up losing even a, a family a family member or someone close to you because of overuse of those um, of those medications. So it's a really, really important topic, not something that we can touch on today in, in a lot of detail, but for patients and doctors alike, um, you should be very, uh, what's the word, Dis, you know, careful about what medications go into your body. Uh, antibiotics is one of those that you, you you may even ask about, do I really need this doc? Or, you know, it's, it's okay for you to ask that question um, because you need to know. And they're, they're very important in treating diseases, but if used inappropriately, it can be very detrimental to public health and to your personal health as well. Great. Well, I just want to say thank you very, very much, uh, Dr. Broom-Webster, this evening for a wonderful presentation. I'm sure that the listeners certainly um, enjoyed. I saw that they, they asked lots of questions. And I want to say thank you on behalf of them and myself. And once again, I want to encourage that all of the listeners that you actually follow us, both on Podbean and Anchor, and join us next week on First Say Chats by Dr. G, Closing the Gap. Good evening.